If there were a hall of fame for super heroic, adrenaline junkie, tough guy adventurers, then there'd be an entire room dedicated to Eric Weinmeier. Eric has kayaked all 277 miles of the Colorado River, including through the Grand Canyon, which they say is one of the most formidable whitewater venues in the world. He has climbed the seven summits, that is, the highest mountain peak on each of the seven continents. He has climbed the face of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, and he has cycled from Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh City, a distance by road of 1,700 kilometers. All of that, of course, is superhuman, especially as for many of us, the most adventurous activity we've engaged in in the last four months has been binge-watching the Great British Bake Off. But here's one characteristic of Eric Weyenmayer that makes him even more semi-divine than you'd expect. Since the age of 13, Eric has been totally blind. When asked to name his most interesting adventure, Eric smiles and describes a descent of the face of El Capitan with several other climbers. They were trying to get off the mountain before evening, a goal which they failed to achieve. Night fell and they were smothered by the dark. So they turned to the one man who had the most experience of climbing in the dark, Eric. And the blind led the sighted to safety. When the blind lead the sighted to safety, you know something amazing is happening. Keep that truth in the back of your mind, because we'll return to it later. But first, if you have listened to any of our sermons in the last few weeks, as we have been journeying through the summer from Eden to Egypt, you have probably reached one or two conclusions. First, the family we are focusing on that began with Abraham and Sarah, continued with Isaac and Rebekah, and is now with Jacob and his twin Esau, are not the Brady Bunch. Neither is there a John Boy Walton to be found, and not even the hint of a little house on a prairie. Abraham and his dynasty are not the subject of a Thomas Kincaid painting or a Norman Rockwell drawing. In fact, his family is a bit too alternative even for the Kardashians and Honey Boo Boo. Forget Duck Dynasty, this is Muck Dynasty. And today's episode is a reality show called The Real Tent Wives of Old Israel. No one needs telling that families are complex. Relationships within the home can be the trickiest to manoeuvre and the hardest to survive. Well, imagine how complex they were in a polygamous culture such as the one we confront in Genesis 29. 
Instead of families as we know them, Genesis gives us households, which are usually large social institutions made up of dozens of people. These households have well-defined power structures. Polygamy added a certain dynamic that made it even more complicated. Inevitably, some wives were more favoured than others, and the children of a favourite wife tended to lord it over the other siblings. Bear that in mind in two weeks, when we meet the next generation of our dysfunctional family. Joseph, he of the amazing Technicolor dreamcoat, was the child of Jacob's favourite wife, And we all know how pompous that made him and how resentful it made his 11 brothers. Now, one other conclusion you have come to is that the family sin of Abraham's dynasty is lying. In fact, the air is thick with the smoke coming from all the pants that are on fire. No less than a quarter of the chapters of Genesis contains stories of deception. Most obviously, the trickery of Jacob in swindling Esau out of his birthright that we read two weeks ago. But it's here as well in today's passage. Here's Jacob. He's run away from his angry twin brother, and he's now staying with his uncle Laban, doing some work on the farm. Laban insists that he pay Jacob and asks him what he'd like as wages. And Jacob, rather surprisingly, asks for the hand of Laban's daughter, Rachel. Let's not dwell on the fact that she is his first cousin. Let's just get caught up in this touching love story. Because Laban says, okay, I'll give you Rachel as your wages as if she were a head of livestock, but she's pretty expensive, you know. She's worth seven years of work, so work for me for seven years, and she's yours. Now, Jacob must really be in love. It says, he worked the seven years, but, quote, they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Can I get an ah? So now the seven years are up. Jacob demands his wages, and Laban's daughter is brought to him wearing a veil, as was the custom. They have a big marriage celebration. Jacob takes her to the marital tent, and in the morning wakes up to discover, sure, this was Laban's daughter, just not Rachel. This was her sister, Leah. Now, not surprisingly, Jacob is a little aggrieved by this, and he goes to Laban to demand an explanation. And Laban says, it's no big deal. It's just that Leah is the older daughter, and it's our custom to marry off the older girl first. But Laban says, If Jacob works for him for another seven years, he'll give him Rachel too. And Jacob, clearly sick with love, agrees. The trickster is tricked. The manipulator 
is manipulated. The con man is conned. Jacob has met his match in the scheming department. Laban and Jacob deserve each other. It's poor Rachel and Leah I feel sorry for. Can you feel the poetic justice? Jacob has broken the law of the firstborn when he tricked Esau out of his birthright. And now Jacob himself is convicted by the law of the firstborn in marrying Leah. Remember Eric, the blind adventurer? When the blind lead the sighted to safety, you know something amazing is happening. Jacob is utterly blind in this story, blinded by love, blinded by passion, blind to what is really going on. But unknown to him, he is on the move, and so is everyone else in the story, because there is a guide leading him. The name of God is nowhere in this text. The actors are blind to his presence, unaware of his gracious, miraculous hand at work. But God is there anyway. Can you see God in your life at this moment? Can you see him at work in quarantine, pandemic, in isolation and restrictions and chaos? Because that is where God lives. So look at your life. Can you see God moving people and events to bring you to a new place where you are to be blessed in a new way? God is weaving pandemic, isolation and disruption into our lives. If you can't see his hand, then just wait. Maybe at the moment you're supposed to be blind. But one day, your patience and faith will come to fruition and you will see that this time was crucial in God changing you, forming you like a potter at a wheel, growing graces in you, getting you ready for what's coming next. God wove deception into a design for Jacob's life that was rich and unpredictable. One of the most thought-provoking TV series in recent years has been HBO's show The Leftovers. The series is set in a small American town three years after 2% of the world's population has disappeared. Millions of people just vanished at the same moment and they had nothing in common. They were from different religions and none all social backgrounds, all nationalities, ethnic identities and ages. And the 98% who have been left are trying to find answers and meaning to the disappearances, including an Episcopal priest. And for Father Matt, this means conducting a one-man crusade against the idea that the vanished were taken by God because of their holiness. This is not some kind of rapture, he insists. 
And so he sets, us, sets about finding embarrassing and scandalous details about the departed and dishes the dirt on them. He digs into their personal lives until he finds something immoral or ugly, then he publishes it in posters and leaflets. At first, we don't like Father Matt. He trespasses on people's grief and sullies the reputations of the dead. But then, part way through the first series, we learn that his wife is a quadriplegic. She cannot move any part of her body and cannot communicate in any way. But Matt loves her devotedly. He cares for her at their home. And as we see his pain, we start to feel slightly better about him. Eventually, we learn how she became a quadriplegic. She had been in her car at the moment when the 2% vanished. Another car, which was being driven by one of the disappeared, was suddenly left driverless, and that empty car ploughed into hers, causing her te terrible disabilities. Father Matt's passionate desire to expose the sins and crimes of the disappeared was fueled by his grief. Saints, like Father Matt, like me, like you, are not always full of piety and awesome encounters with God. Saints are flesh and blood sinners whose sin is permeated by the irresistible grace of God. If we had written Genesis, we may have cut off this dynasty by now, all this deception, manipulation, oppressive customs. But in time, things happened just the way God wanted. You see, one day, 36 generations after Jacob, a baby was born in a stable in Bethlehem. And the Muck dynasty had one final remarkable member who did not mess up like his ancestors, but who redeemed them and redeemed us, who are his followers now. And which of Jacob's wives did Jesus trace his lineage back to? Rachel, maybe, the beautiful one, the beloved one, for whom Jacob toiled 14 years? No. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, and Judah was the son of Leah. Plain, unwanted, unloved Leah. The beloved and the beautiful was not chosen by God to be the woman through whom the world would one day be saved. That was preserved for the ordinary, for the victim of rejection. Hear the word of the Lord. God has plans for you, and even now he is at work, even if you are blind to what's going on. 
Like a GPS, we have a destination. We may make a mistake. We may turn left instead of right. It might mean you arrive at your destination a bit later than you'd hoped, or after spending more money on tolls than you had planned. But God, our guide, will still get you there. Amen.